Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with episode 193 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again, and if I sound different, it is because the Silver King is on the road on vacation, actually, for two days in Naples, Florida. So because I'm on vacation, and yet still finding time generously to bring you this incredible podcast. I'm going to keep it as brief as I can today. Of course, I am just kidding saying all of that. A reminder here, of course, before we get going, please do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review. Let people know how much you love this show. It's really important. It helps us jump up the rankings, get more people listening. And that is, of course, the goal of the show. And also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOverCast. Well, today's show is all about NXT and AEW, that's what we do every Thursday here at Getting Over. So we are going to start with NXT. We'll roll on to AEW Dynamite Fight for the Fallen. we got plenty to say about both shows, so let's not waste any time. Uh, On NXT, Samoa Joe charged to the ring early in the show, grabbing a table and chair from underneath and chucking them onto the mat. Joe said he knew Karrion Cross was too much of a coward to join him, so he invited General Manager William Regal to the ring. Joe said he knew Regal planned to fire Cross, but instead, Joe opened a notebook that included three papers, his letter of resignation from management, a talent contract, and a match contract for the NXT title at NXT TakeOver 36. Regal signed all three papers, they shook hands, and just like that, we have our storyline and our main event for that show. I loved this because it was just such a simple segment, really easy piece of booking, and yet it was creative. And it was better than most main event storylines we get on Raw, just like by direct comparison. Regal didn't even speak the entire time. It was just Joe like managing the entire segment. It was pure intensity from him. He had a game plan. He executed it. And he was convincing Joe was the entire time. Wrestling is really not that complicated. This proved how easy and good it can be with a simple, somewhat unique and different storyline. So it was fantastic. And I really liked it. Adam Cole against Bronson Reed was the main event of the show. Cole said he's not on the rebound, he's on top of the mountain, and Reed lost the North American title because he's simply not good enough. It was simple and effective. This was a totally even match with plenty of offense going both ways, and it was a great dynamic between two guys who are vastly different in terms of size. Reed hit a swinging fireman's carry, but Cole came back with a flying knee and a Panama Sunrise for a 2.8 count. Reed countered last shot with a clothesline and powerbomb, but Cole dodged the tsunami, nailed a super kick, and the last shot for the clean 1-2-3. The match was a blast. Uh, It could have torn the house down, honestly, if it was at a takeover and had another 10 minutes or so. But the result puts Reed, I believe, on a collision course for the main roster. And I have to think he's going to go over to SmackDown, considering how many big guys are already on Raw. Kyle O'Reilly attacked Cole after the match with a chair. He dug it into the back of his neck. Then he tore off half the steel steps and delivered a vertical suplex to Cole onto them. And he actually got booed. I said this last week. The crazy Kyle character is a huge improvement over cool Kyle, but given that he won their last match and nothing antagonizing has happened since, the attack didn't really make much sense to me unless it's just a deranged type of heel turn. But you know what I'm going to say next. You guys know, Cole O'Reilly rubber match a takeover, make it loser leaves town, have Cole go to the main roster. I don't know that they're going to do it, but I'm going to keep pressing it until we find out what is going to happen in this match. It remains, in my opinion, the perfect booking. Absolutely should happen. But let's see how it pans out. As far as the match goes, um, you know, I didn't actually write down a grade. I forgot, but I think it was really good. Probably 3.5 stars and a B. It was just a really, really good, solid match. 
Uh, Raquel Gonzalez addressed the entire women's division on the show. Gonzalez said she's dominated all challengers and asked who's next. And she spoke a lot of Spanish throughout the promo, which was cool that she she was able to go back and forth uh, between the languages. Dakota Kai said she's really proud of Gonzalez, called her the most dominant woman in NXT history, and then yelled out for someone to challenge her. No one answered, and Kai said Gonzalez would be champion as long as Dakota had her back. They held each other's hands like two different times with a lot of really nice sentiment, which was kind of cool. And then as Gonzalez kind of celebrated being on top of the mountain, climbing the ropes, Kai attacked her with a haluva kick in what I believe was a tremendous double down heel turn. Maybe she cuts a face promo next week because fans really want to cheer her. And, you know, you could potentially be in a little bit of a Becky Lynch situation, but I'm fine with Dakota Kai as a heel. And I think she did a really good job with the turn. Unlike the Becky Lynch turn against Charlotte Flair a couple of years ago, there's not really a large enough crowd in NXT that would force creative's hand one way or the other. You know, Becky was originally booked that was booked to be a heel turn on Charlotte, but the crowd loved Becky so much, made her a face, and obviously we got the man character and everything that happened after that. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen with Dakota Kai, um, but this was an extremely hot and well-done segment for both women. Kai proved this. Uh, just this promo alone, honestly, proved that she's ready for the main roster, not to mention her wrestling and all her ability. Gonzalez's promo, by the way, was not that shabby either. My expectation is it's going to be Kai beating Gonzalez and sending her up. But I'd have zero objection if it went the other way. And honestly, I'd prefer it because Dakota Kai would be a great addition to Raw and she could emerge as a top contender right away. Fans would really get behind her. But no matter what happens, uh, this is going to be a fantastic takeover match. And I was going to say that it could steal the show, except something that was announced a little bit later will undoubtedly steal the show. But this has a chance to be the second best match on takeover. Uh, Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher faced Pete Dunne and Oni Lorcan. This was a hard-hitting, strong-style match, as expected. Ciampa and Thatcher brutalized the heels outside. They celebrated together on the announce table. Dunne used the ropes for a bouncing German suplex on Ciampa. Thatcher had Dunne in an ankle lock outside when Ridge Holland returned and took out Thatcher, leaving Ciampa on his own with Dunne catching him with the bitter end for the 1-2-3. The trio then brutalized both faces, with Holland almost appearing as the more dominant of the group when he made a quick parking lot statement about plenty of people going to get beat up at NXT in the future. So while I'd have loved to see this match play out clean, because it was really damn good, Holland's return was a welcome surprise. The fact that this dude is back less than 10 months from breaking an ankle and rupturing a patellar tendon in one of the most gruesome injuries we've seen on WWE television is simply outstanding. So we got a surprise to end a damn good match and a fresh storyline. And now we wait to kind of see who the faces add as a third, because I assume we're going to get a six-man match out of this. If you remember, I was really high on Holland being a breakout star down the line when he first debuted. And I'm just very excited to see what's next for him. And I'm glad he's back and healthy. That's really cool. We had Carmelo Hayes against Josh Briggs in the NXT breakout tournament. Both guys cut video promos before the match. Neither of them was notable. Briggs was billed from nothing Arizona, which is awesome. And by the way, it is a real place. Um, Dexter Loomis is built from Recluse, uh, Wyoming. I love those little touches that NXT puts on the characters. When the field was first announced, I actually thought this could have been the final match, Carmelo against Briggs. Uh, Hayes got the flashier, but Briggs took him down with a huge boot and a choke slam. Hayes finally won with a flying leg drop to the back of Briggs' head. It was a good enough match, and the semifinal showdown with Duke Hudson should rock. I've not been as impressed by this tournament as the one we got two years ago. In fact, it's not even that close. But Carmelo is really 
the standout star from this group. And it's telling that he already has had like three NXT matches before the breakout tournament even began. Io Shirai was training alone when Zoe Stark suggested trying to get on the same page, you know, considering they're tag team champions. Shirai said she didn't want a friend. Stark suggested giving her a shot. Shirai said no because she doesn't like her. But Stark convinced her to hang out and just give her a chance. This odd couple pairing is super interesting. I just hope it doesn't lead to another quick title change. Like these tag team championships have been a hot potato since they debuted and that must stop. It's like on NXT, they change the titles too much. On WWE, they have long title reigns, which is great, obviously, but there's basically no tag teams left. So again, I just don't know what either company right now is doing with the women's tag team titles. I'm very happy that they exist, but neither of them is really using them well. It's actually a little bit of a shame because even though NXT's had really good women's tag team matches, there's just not really a division for it. And and th- for some reason, the Casey's, Casey Cantonazaro and Caden Carter, who we're going to talk about next, like never get an opportunity. They should be the champions. Like WWE has this weird thing that whenever there's a natural real women's tag team, they don't give them the titles. Sexy Muscle Friends is a great example. Riot Squad is a great example. They just always just put two stars together and give them the titles. And to me, that's pretty annoying. So I said uh, Casey Cantonazaro and Caden Carter against Frankie Monet and Jesse Camia. Monet said her relationship with Robert Stonebrand was still to be determined, but when she mentioned going after the women's tag team titles with Camia, the KC shut her down, setting up the match. Monet dominated the entire time. Stone distracted her late, giving her instructions on like how to win, and the KCs combined for the assisted 450 moonsault splash um, for the win. It was far too short of a match for my liking, but the booking was solid. Uh, Mandy Rose was also shown talking to Gigi Dolan and JC Jane backstage when a camera approached her but she just shooed them away. It's simple stuff like this that WWE needs to do more on the main roster. It creates intrigue and storyline potential. And maybe we're going to get a women's group faction here, right? That would be super cool. Again, something we don't get on the main roster that would be really unique in wrestling, uh, especially American wrestling, to get. Uh, Diamond Mine was interviewed by Wade Barrett. Roderick Strong said wrestling is 90% mental, 10% physical, and his 10% is better than everyone else's 100%. Malcolm Bivens said Strong is not a number four or a five guy on a brand, but a number one, and that he accomplished what Regal couldn't by bringing Strong back. They set Strong versus Bobby Fish for next week, which makes sense as the direction Strong needs to go before facing Kushida for the Cruiserweight title. I was just happy that we finally got some explanation here after three weeks of nothing. They should have done this the week after they debuted. Hit Row faced Imperium in the tag team match. Hit Row cut a promo in the studio with Swerve saying it's a Hit Row summer, while BFAB and Top Dollar both spoke in Spanish at Legado del Fantasma. Top Dollar then dropped a European accent, I think, to talk to Imperium. It wasn't a standout video or anything, but it was more than solid. Uh, Top Dollar has to get better ring gear. He looked like a mix of Cassius Ono and Angelo Dawkins. Uh, he got a hot tag in the match and debuted a you-can't-see-me like swag-style elbow drop, uh, which was pretty cool. Legato then distracted and attacked with Top Dollar laying them out at ringside as Ashanti the Adonis took a flying European uppercut for the loss. Uh, Legato then triple team Top Dollar, and it took Swerve forever to make the save. Hit Row, it seems, is now clearly faces. We'll see if it's just this feud or if it's, you know, full time, but they are faces right now. This was a good way to get Imperium a win without damaging Hit Row while simultaneously establishing their side of the feud. The match itself, though, was just okay. Uh, The Way was arguing backstage about what happened to Austin Theory and who was at fault for him leaving when a courier delivered another Dexter Loomis drawing to Indy Hartwell. And she fawned all over it. Indy suggested Johnny Gargano fight Dexter with the stipulation that she is allowed to see him if Loomis wins. Gargano agreed and Candice LeRae added the stipulation that Indy had to ignore Loomis 
if Gargano won. Theory was nowhere to be found, which is depressing for me because, you know, I want the way to continue as it is. The lover or loser match, which is what they booked for next week, it's a bit silly, but if it's perfectly in the world of professional wrestling where not everything has to be super serious and it is a logical conclusion to the storyline, presumably with Gargano losing, so I'm here for it. Uh, L.A. Knight played golf with Cameron Grimes as his caddy. Grimes bet him $5,000 that he would hit into some trees. He annoyed Knight, and he won the money. Knight later made Grimes go get his ball in the lake, which Grimes did because he's a man of his word. Ted DiBiase drove up in a golf cart and gave him a mentor-style speech about being a fighter and not letting people walk all over him. Uh, the grizzled young veterans later showed up, and they got angry at Knight's slow play. Grimes accidentally swung a club backwards into Knight's nuts and followed through with a hole-in-one to win $20,000. It's convoluted how he got there, but just trust me, it happened. Uh, Grimes then convinced uh, Knight that the veterans were responsible for the nut shot, so I guess that's going to be maybe a tag team match or something next week? I don't know. Whatever it is, they'll presumably lose it. Uh, it's strange because I simultaneously find this whole thing really corny, but a bit endearing, which I'm sure is probably the point. So it's working. It's obvious how it's going to play out, but I do wonder what's next for both guys after the eventual million-dollar championship change. So that was really it. Um, NXT on Sci-Fi, you know, I didn't necessarily understand why NXT taped back-to-back shows just because they were going to be on a different network. They were still airing in the same time slot. Uh, Presumably, there's no reason the talent couldn't get to uh, the Performance Center, the Capital Wrestling Center, to do the shows. Maybe it was just a means of giving people a break after a really long period of time, you know, taping consecutive shows, like a little bit of summer vacation or something. I don't understand what was behind it, but hey, it was a good taped show. Like it wasn't exceptional or anything like that, but top to bottom, you know, there's nothing I said there that was bad in any way. Some stuff hotter than others, just like it has been for the last couple of weeks coming out of two or three great NXT episodes. The last three have just been, you know, normally really good. Nothing that you ever felt that you wasted two hours watching. Now, let's move on from NXT to AEW because AEW presented Dynamite Fight for the Fallen. And this is another really great episode of AEW Dynamite. They have been nailing it. I mean, I thought, I'm forgetting which night, but one of the nights of Fighter Fest I liked far more than the other. But I think it's been three weeks, maybe four weeks in a row. I want to say three weeks, where AEW has just knocked Dynamite out of the park. They did what WWE did not do. They prepared big-time storylines, really exciting cards, and just good wrestling and things that would make the crowd pop for the return of fans. WWE in some ways did, you know, especially on SmackDown. They it, WWE relied more on talent returning than really good storylines because basically they're still doing repeats and rematches and Raw is just horrendously booked in particular. So I really credit AEW, not just for putting on good shows, but for planning to put on good shows and following through with it all these weeks in a row. And it's really, really exciting, not just for this, but hey, look, Rampage is starting in two weeks and it's going to be pretty cool to see how they manage to fit that in as well. So let's break down Fight for the Fallen. The show opened with the Elite versus Hangman Adam Page and the Dark Order in a 10-man elimination match. The entrances for this match were easily the best AEW has ever done for any of its matches. From the Page video, the spotlights with an extra spotlight for Brody Lee, obviously, who wasn't there, the heel basketball Space Jam entrance for the Elite. Promotional integration or not, I didn't care at all. Doing a hoops entrance in Charlotte is smart, especially for heels. Uh, the match had an important stipulation as you know, set with the challengers getting title shots if they win. But the way it began with these entrances just made you feel 
how important the match was, and it really riled the crowd up. It's a great way to start a show to get the crowd hot like that. It was also, as I said, a really good example of AEW separating from WWE. In WWE, every entrance for a superstar is exactly the same for every single show, with perhaps an exception at WrestleMania. That was not the case here. This was a regular TV show. I know it was a special event, but it's the weekly TV show, and they came up with something really unique and creative to make the match feel important. In short, I loved it. As for the match, look, it was a 10-man tag in AEW. There were no rules. Like, I don't know. You couldn't even expect it. JR, actually, Jim Ross, made a great point that a 10-man match is way too much for one referee. And really, in wrestling, forget AEW, any wrestling company, once you go beyond six people, there should be two referees. There should be a ref inside and a ref outside. So, okay, whatever. We know there's no rules in AEW tag team wrestling anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, there was a vertical suplex off the top rope outside, taking out the other eight dudes. Alex Reynolds got rolled up. Carl Anderson ate a fatality. Uh, that made it four on four. Stu Grayson hit a springboard twister outside, but no one caught him. And then he jumped off of Vom into Doc Gallows and missed that too. So man, like this guy took some bumps and I'm glad he was okay. Uh, both got counted out, even though Rick Knox never started actually counting. He just decided it was a count out. Uh, Evil Uno then took the one-winged angel. Uh, the Bucks took out Paige with a double powerbomb into the ring apron and then did a stupid indie taker while simultaneously trying to dunk a basketball. It was just really bad. Uh, before pinning Silver, uh, Paige was one on three. He kicked out of Super Kick Party and an elevated 450 splash. He had a double buckshot lariat to pin both Bucks. Omega failed uh, to do a belt shot, and Paige hit Deadeye for a 2.8, and JR thought it was a 3, which I don't know if that was kayfabe or not. It was just really confusing. Uh, Omega countered a buckshot lariat with a belt shot, but Paige kicked out at 2.9, so Omega added two V-triggers and the one-winged angel for the win. This was a fantastic match, and it was a great finish that totally subverted our expectations of Dark Order and Paige winning and getting all title matches. As I said a few weeks ago, it felt like Paige versus Omega was actually being rushed just because crowds were back, as the storyline had really lost some momentum because they hadn't really, you know, taken it up in a number of months. Well, since then, over the last two or three weeks, it's gained a lot of momentum back, but it was all just another tease for Paige. When that moment happens, probably now I assume it's going to be a double or nothing, or at least another future pay-per-view instead of all out, it is going to be epic. He is over as Rover in AEW. He's as over as any wrestler in America is right now with his home crowd. Now, despite there being no rules in this match and some of it being a cluster, I loved it. I gave it 4.25 stars and an A because it was pure entertainment with some great booking and I loved the storyline of Paige not winning. Three on one, they put the odds against him. He got it to one-on-one -on -one and the champion beat him. There's no shame in that whatsoever. That's another perfect example of how a top face or a top wrestler can take a clean loss. And yeah, I guess Omega used the belt, but nevertheless, a clean loss. And it not hurt him one iota. He'll come back next week and get cheered. The roof will blow off. Uh, we'll move to the main event. Chris Jericho faced Nick Gage in a no rules match. And it was the second um, labor of Jericho. Jericho came out as the pain maker. There was blood immediately, I think less than 60 seconds. There was a bat, fluorescent light, and then Gage dug a pizza cutter into Jericho's forehead. Gage set up a large pane of glass on two chairs, and Jericho hurricaneed him into it off the ropes. 
clearly so Gage would take the bump and Jericho could avoid it. It was a cool spot. Uh, Gage broke two lights over Jericho's head and then Pyle drove him into the broken glass for a near fall. Gage then stabbed Jericho with a broken light and dug another one into his head. Then he brought out two sets of four fluorescent lights taped together. Jericho spat mist in his face, smashed one of those sets of lights over his head, and hit the Judas effect for the win. So while this was booked well and the match went as expected, guys, it's just, it's not for me. I'm okay with blood. I'm okay with hardcore matches. I'm okay with weapons. I don't need guys using pizza cutters or digging glass into someone's skull, and I don't need that much blood. I just don't need this as part of my wrestling. So, you know, it wasn't for me, but I respect that it was well done, at least. Uh, now, after the match, MJF said the third labor of Jericho is going to be him needing to hit a top rope high-flying maneuver in order to win his next match, which sounds easy enough. But then they called back to Jericho's old promo with MJF, where he made a remark about Juventud Guerrera, with MJF announcing that Juve would actually be his opponent in the match. I love the callback here, and it's super smart from a storyline perspective. But I have no idea what it's going to look like to see guys at a combined 96 years of age go at it. And obviously, especially when it comes to Juvie, he's a high flyer. What's he going to be able to do at 46 years old? I mean, I know Ray Mysterio can still go, but Juvie hasn't been actively wrestling, at least that I know of, the way that Ray Mysterio has. No matter what, I presume AEW knows he's in good shape and able to do the match. Pac and Andrade El Idolo had a confrontation backstage. Honestly, you guys know I try to hit every single thing. I don't know what they said. Like, I don't know if I didn't listen or my notes got deleted or something, but it wasn't that impactful and it was super short. So I'm sure it was just continuing to build the storyline we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Ricky Starks had his FTW championship celebration. There was a New Orleans jazz band. Stark said he always held Team Taz together. Brian Cage never cared about him and he had no charisma. Cage predictably entered, beat up some band members, and then Starks escaped. Hiroshi Tanahashi of New Japan cut a taped promo about challenging the winner of the IWGP United States Championship uh, match that was coming up later in the show. That is super exciting. That match, uh, it was Lance Archer against uh, Hikalo. Uh, King Haku joined his son at ringside for the match, which was a nice surprise. Archer hit a big superplex and then won with the blackout. It was a good spot for Archer, who is going to go on to face Tanahashi in Japan. Now, staying with that, later in the show, John Moxley cut a promo being angry that he couldn't get into Japan to take care of unfinished business he had in New Japan, while Olympians are able to be there for the Olympics and go to Tokyo and do all that type of stuff. He also said that it's ironic that Tanahashi is finally interested in going after the United States title now that Moxley lost it. So it seems clear to me that we're going to get Mox versus Tanahashi soon, either in Japan or honestly, more likely, maybe even at All Out, which would be huge. And what a booking that would be to really get people excited about that show. We also had Santana and Ortiz against FTR. There was good wrestling throughout, but honestly, nothing really felt that significant in the match. Cash Wheeler may have been legitimately hurt, and Dax Hardwood had a brain buster for the win. So I don't know if it was a quick call for the finish, if that was the plan, but it just wasn't a notable match, despite two really good tag teams uh, wrestling. So that was a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, Britt Baker said she's a badass because she beat Nyla Rose with a broken wrist. That's true, by the way. She actually is... Uh, dealing with a broken wrist and is legitimately in a cast. She said everyone in AEW is jealous of her and waiting for her to fail. That was about it. I presume they're going to hold off a new storyline for her until they're 100% sure that she can go, but they are doing a number one contendership match next week. So I don't know, maybe the goal right now is just for her to wrestle next at all out, which would make sense. Uh, Tony Schiavone announced on behalf of Tony Khan that AEW Rampage would do a special show in its second episode called The First Dance 
at the United Center in Chicago. The crowd started chanting CM Punk, and cameras showed some fans chanting it. Darby Allen then cut a tape promo about proving one is the best in the world in AEW, clearly indicating that Punk is going to be at that show, and I assume making his debut in a match against Darby Allen. That's extremely exciting. I'm not sure about debuting Punk on the second show of Rampage on a Friday night at 10 p.m., even if you want to pop a rating and draw attention to the show, using CM Punk for that versus at a pay-per-view or on a Dynamite, seems like you should really do that where you know you're going to have more eyeballs on it. But hey, we'll see what happens and maybe it works and I'm wrong. Uh, Cody Rhodes was being interviewed in gorilla position when he was attacked by Malachi Black, both of them again still wearing white and black respectively. They fought onto the stage with Black getting cheers and Cody being booed, which that's how I see it, right? So <laughs> uh, I don't blame them. Uh, Black said, welcome to the House of Black, and then hit a Black mass on Fuego de Sol, who ran in to help along with trainers and other members of the Nightmare family. It was a hot little segment, and you know that match next week, Cody against Malachi Black, it's going to be really good. Black absolutely must win that match. Uh, Miro cut a convoluted promo to explain his defending his TNT title against Lee Johnson next week. He also put over Lana as his hot double-jointed wife. He didn't name her. Uh, the adjustments they made to Miro have been great. I just don't understand why we never see him live between matches. Maybe it's part of his contract where he only travels if he fights or something like that. But it's just weird that you get these really short tape promos with Miro and there's no more character development, no storyline for the TNT title. Just like, okay, we're going to fight Lee Johnson now. Uh, Christian Cage uh, and Jurassic Express faced the Hardy family office. Private Party was dressed as the Hardy Boys, uh, considering it was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Matt Hardy was chased from ringside early in the match. Christian hit a frog splash for the win. It was a nothing match. Blade attacked Christian afterwards with brass knuckles on behalf of Hardy, and he knocked Christian out cold, so clearly we will have Blade against Christian coming up soon. Thunder Rosa fought Julia Hart in the women's match. Rosa has just officially signed, by the way, with AEW. This was a terrible match. I'm not, you know, Rose is good, but it was a bad match. She won with the Thunder Driver. AEW just really does not give a shit about its women's division. There's no active storylines, no obvious top contender, just nothing happening. Like they did a good job getting Britt Baker the title. And yes, they did have a good Britt Baker Thunder Rosa match, you know, a couple months ago, but that doesn't suddenly mean the women's division is fixed. There was, there's a lot of problems top to bottom uh, with AEW. I mean, as there are with WWE, as there are in NXT, there's so many things that all these companies can improve on, but the women's division is a glaring, glaring weakness where, man, even just give them extra time on Rampage when it starts. Like, give them two matches every Rampage and one match on Dynamite, and that would be an improvement. But I just don't have any hope because I keep saying the same thing every single week and it doesn't change. So it is what it is, I guess, at this point. And I hate using that phrase, but it is indeed what it is. So that's really it. Uh, like I said, I was going to do a quick show today. I didn't want to linger too much. I do have a vacation to get back to. So I appreciate all of you joining me and, and listening to the breakdown of NXT and AEW here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back on Tuesday with our next WWE show. Please do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review to let people know how much you love this podcast, and follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So with all of that now in the books, the Silver King is going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.